This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, joining us here at, at our table on the, uh, on the concourse here at the Wells Fargo Center is uh, David Greenberg, who is a professor of history, journalism, and media studies at Rutgers University in uh, beautiful New Brunswick, New Jersey. He has uh, put out a new book called Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. And uh, great to have David joining us here at our table. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Glad to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of asking this, I think, of all the guests that, that we're talking here today. When watching this all play out, what's your general reaction? <laughs> well, from the point of view and, of and spin, I say, and I say yeah. that, and I say that for both conventions. Yeah. Well, you know, the conventions have become sort of the apotheosis of spin. I mean, this is a week-long yeah. effort by the parties and the candidates to put their absolute best foot forward. Yeah. And every speech you're getting, you know, this week tonight. Um, every little segment that's done is all you know planned and yeah. crafted, and that for the last hundred plus years is what campaigns and also the White House has learned how to do with everything it wants to achieve. When did it all really get started? Well, the book starts with Theodore Roosevelt, and yeah. both in campaigning for the presidency and also in governing from the White House, uh, you really see the turn of the century, the last century, uh, this is when things change. You have new media technologies, oh. uh, first mass circulation newspapers and very soon radio newsreels. You have a president that's trying to be a kind of symbol or tribune for the people who's going out and trying to move and sway public opinion. Yeah. That's really the key operative. And then you have someone like Teddy Roosevelt who comes up with all these ways to you know, try new publicity stunts, hire press officers, yeah. that whole apparatus that's like, you know, dwarfs uh, today, anything <laughs> that he could have devised really gets started with Theodore Roosevelt. It's funny because when a lot of people think of, uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, obviously they think of San Juan Hill, uh, probably one of the first things. They don't think of him uh, uh, of being a, the ultimate strategist. And obviously he had to be in the military, but I guess, you know, he took that, when he went into politics and, and, and running the country. Absolutely. And even even when he was with the Rough Riders uh, at San Juan Hill, he was thinking about the media. You yeah. know, he wrote to uh, a, a magazine publisher getting a contract for a multi-part installment of his wartime heroics before he went <laughs> to fight in Cuba. <laughs> so he knew this was going to be good publicity. And then when he came back a hero, he was practically elected governor of New York by acclamation because yeah. of the media hype around his uh, heroics there. So he was an instinctive master at it. What was it that, that, that got you thinking about doing a book about spin? Well, my first book was on Richard Nixon. Uh, someone I'd always had an interest in from, I, you know, some of my earliest memories as a kid were of Watergate and Nixon's resignation. Yeah. And Nixon was really the master, the modern master of the image and the presidency as the seat of image making. But when I finished that book, I realized there was actually deeper roots that this didn't begin with Nixon at all. Sure. Yeah. And when I went back to try to study it, well, where, where does the modern presidency with its focus on image making, on the crafting of the message, on the swaying of public 
opinion begin. Yeah. That's where I saw, okay, this really goes back at least to TR. And I wanted to tell the story because no one had told this whole story. There are bits and pieces about, you know, JFK or Reagan or so-and-so yeah. with their pollsters. But no one had really woven together, as this book does, the history of the presidents, the history of the spin doctors who are their advisors yeah. and consigliaries, yeah. and the history of the writers and journalists and intellectuals who see this whole machinery of spin develop and try to explain to the public what's going on. So it's really this master narrative of all these different colorful characters woven together into one big story. Would you say Richard Nixon was one of the best of the presidents in being able to pull this off? And I use that phrase because I think there are many times where politicians are trying to pull something off when, they, when they're trying to get their point across. Yeah. Well, Nixon was very good as, until he wasn't. You know, Nixon's earliest debut on the national scene was actually at a convention, one of the earliest, with Dwight Eisenhower in 1952. Soon after that, he comes under fire for a scandal. Yeah. And he's keeping this slush fund beach where, yeah. you know, he yep. talks about his family and this little dog checkers that his, his girls had been given as a gift. And, you know, this, if, if they're going to get him on gifts and taking money, it was just this wonderful yeah. dog. Well, a lot of people blame thought, the dog, right? Exactly. Um, you know, a lot of people thought this was hokey, but it really worked. So that was an instance where he really found the right register. But the problem with Nixon is he often, was too transparent at it. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite Nixon stories is he always envied the pictures of John F. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy walking on the beach looking so carefree. Yeah. So he arranges to have his own sea shot, as they called it. And he had all the reporters and photographers come out to a bluff in San Clemente where he had his Western White House yeah. waiting for the sea shot. He comes out walking in wingtips and trousers. Oh, God. So he doesn't look... Kennedy-esque. He looks like someone trying to look Kennedy-esque. Yeah, and yeah. with Nixon, you could often see him trying. And, and he was never even close to being anything near looking like a Kennedy. Right, right. So over the years, you know, partly the public learns to see through these tricks and these yeah. devices. So yes, there's more spin than ever now. But we're also pretty good at seeing through it, I think. How much of that obviously plays into the fact that with social media being so prevalent these days, and, and, you know, I think we all live on our smartphones, that with all the tweeting and the blogging and everything that's kind of out there, you can't get, it's, it's harder to get away with this type of stuff now than it would be, say, 20 years ago. Right. So it's sort of a, a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's harder to get straight, uninflected news than it used to be. Right. I mean, it used to be we could count on certain radio, television, newspaper, to give us news that was relatively free of bias. I mean, no one's perfectly objective. Yeah. Now, kind of everything's coming at you with an edge, an angle, a partisan spin. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, that is the world we live in, so we're kind of trained to uh, account for it, to discount for the bias, discount for the argument. We know not to just take somebody else's tweet or somebody else's you know, web posting at face value. I would imagine that, that as time has developed from, you know, Teddy Roosevelt on, you mentioned with Teddy Roosevelt with, with the, the real push in terms of newspaper, uh, but then you get a stretch uh, of time and then you get into the 1940s and 50s and then television comes along. Right. And that it becomes the new medium to use. And then obviously, as you mentioned with Nixon and, and 
all of the presidents do then. Then you get to realistically President Obama, and then the internet is. So, did you notice a, a, a significant sea change in in the approach of a lot of the spin doctors and the presidents as those kind of periods in history develop, where you saw TV and you see the internet? Yeah, what I notice is with each new technology that emerges, presidents kind of grapple and experiment as they try to learn how to master it. And usually the first president to confront a new medium isn't always the best. So we think of JFK as the television president. And I've got a lot in the book, great stuff on JFK. But you go back, even more fascinating to me was Eisenhower trying to master television. Sure, yeah. People don't think of him as the TV president, but from day one, he's got advisors. A lot of his closest advisors were from Young and Rubicam Advertising Agency, some from Hollywood, Robert Montgomery, who became the first uh, White House TV coach with an office in the West Wing. He yeah. was a former actor, yep. uh, father of Elizabeth Montgomery from yep. Bewitched. Yep. Yep. So... They're trying to help Eisenhower figure out what to do. At first, he's terrible, he's awkward, he's bumbling. But by the end of his presidency, he's actually pretty good. Eisenhower gives some very memorable and effective primetime Oval Office addresses about the Little Rock integration crisis, yeah. about Sputnik when the Ru Russians launched the Sputnik satellite. So by the end of Eisenhower's presidency, he's actually fairly good with television for someone you know who's born in the 19th century and not a natural with the new medium i think we've seen the same thing with the internet you know it was there for clinton and bush and they didn't really do much with it obama's really the first one to sort of figure out this is a tool for reaching voters and viewers who are not watching television who are yeah. not listening to the radio or reading the newspaper yeah. and, and to try to get at them through other angles. And they want to see it packaged in about a five-minute window so that they can either, you know, watch it when they quickly get to the office or they're watching it and, and listening to it on the train or, you know, some people's lives are so rushed these days, they don't have time to sit down and watch a 30-minute newscast anymore. Right. And so they're happy to sort of get it in these snippets. Now, I think Again, people are usually savvy enough to know if it's a White House video feed that there's going to be another side of the story. Yeah. But people feel, well, why should I get it you know, filtered through someone else if I can get it straight from the source? Who, who were the presidents uh, in doing your research that seemingly did not, were not able to pull off spin the way that... Uh, the, the way the really good ones could. Right. Well, there are actually a number of them, but what's interesting is that some of the ones who we remember... Uh, or forget as failures with spin actually originally were hailed as being very good at it. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Herbert Hoover, when he first runs for president, is described by all the pundits as kind of a modern genius with publicity. Yeah. Um, and he has this sort of the first ever big campaign film called Masters of Emergency that show him when he was Commerce Secretary tending to the Mississippi flood of 1927, which yeah. was the worst natural disaster until Hurricane uh, Katrina. Katrina. Then, when he's president, he gets the Great Depression. <laughs> and nothing he can do in the way of spin can help him at all because he doesn't have the policies. He even hires Edward Bernays, who's considered the father of American public relations. He was Sigmund <laughs> Freud's nephew. And he puts Bernays on this committee to try to figure out PR spin to get people to, you know, buy more, spend more. 
it, it doesn't go anywhere. And Bernays eventually says, like, look, I'm not a magician. <laughs> you need a jobs <laughs> program, basically. So underneath the spin failures, most of the time, I'd say, are policy failures. Sure. So when presidents say, oh, you know, the problem was my messaging, my marketing, uh, usually, not all the time, but usually that's a cover story for policies that aren't resonating. You're listening to Nadja Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're here in Philadelphia at the Wells Fargo Center at the Democratic National Convention. We're joined by David Greenberg, who's a professor at Rutgers University and the author of the book Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. So with the internet age, as you said, Obama has, has kind of really maximized, I think, what he's been able to do. Why was it, though, that Clinton and, and Bush and Bush were not able to maximize it the way that they probably could? Well, for one thing, they didn't quite need to yet. Okay. Uh, you know, they're still operating in an age that was dominated by television. I mean, it's, it's hard to think now because things have changed so fast, so quickly. Yeah. But Especially with Clinton. I, I would have thought that, that President Clinton would have been all over it at right. that time. And, you know, there are times where you see the Internet playing a role. Yeah. Matt Drudge and the Drudge Report sort of putting out the Lewinsky scandal, sure. you know, and then yep. getting that for the first time yep. to be picked up by the mainstream media. You start to see the Internet's influence. But instead what they do are things that I think are kind of forerunners of the Obama technique. So Clinton realized if he was getting you know, a lot of grief from the Washington press corps, the folks who were gathered every day in the White House press room. He liked to do these satellite interviews. He'd go around to lots of local stations where he'd get, I won't call it softball questions, but, you know, friendlier questioning. Yeah. Uh, and he, if he wanted to launch a new policy initiative, that was a much better way to go, to reach people in Cleveland or Tulsa or Seattle, you know, than trying to burst through the, the mainstream uh, Washington media. Yeah. Bush did events with uh, talkers. You know, he had he had right wing talk radio day on the White House sure. lawn. Yeah. Um, Clinton, for promoting uh, efforts against climate change, did initiative with the Weather Channel. <laughs> so they're starting to realize you don't have to just go through the big three networks. Yeah. There are other ways to reach niche audiences, and it's really only you know in the Obama era that that makes the leap to the internet. For me, I'm, I'm 49 years of age. The, the, the two presidents that I remember growing up, a little bit of Nixon, but more Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Compare and contrast those two with what they were obviously trying to bring forward and, and what they were able to see, succeed with in terms of their presidencies. Yeah, well, a, a, a great contrast because, uh, again, going to my point about Hoover, it's not that presidents who... Uh, were good at spin, you know, are remembered as great presidents. Yeah. It's, it's presidents who achieve big things are remembered as good spinners. Yeah. I was shocked when I went back and looked at Jimmy Carter, how in 76 in his campaign and into 1977, he was described as a master of the media. <laughs> I know, hard to believe. Right, exactly. Uh, yes. He had That's right. Pat Cadell, this wonderkin pollster. He had Jerry Rafshoon, kind of the slickest consultant. There was a New York Times magazine cover that shows a cartoon of Carter kind of in this television control room with ABC, CBS, NBC, and he's kind of pulling all the switches. Oh, God. Um, and then, you know, economy tanks, 
hostage crisis, Russians invade Afghanistan. Yeah. Carter's policies are completely ineffective. And then the media operation starts unraveling, too. And Jerry Rafshoon, who's his consultant, uh, they even come up with a name for spin, calling it Rafshoonery. <laughs> so oh everything he does, well, oh this is another one of Jerry Rafshoon's tricks to try to take you know, our attention away from the economy. Reagan, in a way, had, had the opposite benefit. He's remembered as the great communicator, and yeah. certainly he could deliver a terrific speech. He had a certain touch. But he also could be really bad in communicating yes. at times. Yes. When he was off the cuff, he botched facts. You know, trees are responsible for most of our air pollution. <laughs> Sugar Ray Leonard and his wife come to the White House. He welcomes Sugar Ray and Mrs. Ray. I mean, he's just always off the cuff. It, people wondered if he could think straight. And so they started kind of containing him and make sure... You know, they had everything from the visuals and the optics to the words yeah. all mapped out. Then he could be effective. The real reason I think he remains popular and his stock has risen um, is he helped bring about the end of the Cold War. Yes, he did. Uh, and, and it's interesting because when you think about the, the, the issues and, and going off the cuff that Ronald Reagan would do, a lot of people will say, okay, and maybe they've forgotten about it. Now, here in 2016, we have a candidate that prefers to go off the cuff, and a lot of times it gets him in trouble. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting with Trump is for the early part of his campaign, that spontaneity, that unfiltered quality was really a large part of his appeal. And yeah. I think to a lot of people it still is. Yep. But as is often the case, uh, that only gets you so far. And that soon you start making gaffes, you start running into the limits of, you know, your policy knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a great example was Trump, until kind of early this year, would never walk back a statement, apologize, even if he knew it would alienate key Republican voters, that yeah. he felt standing his ground was more important. But then... You know, there were a few instances where he said he would default on the national debt, had to walk that back. Yeah. He would punish women for having abortions, had to walk that back. So you start seeing Trump behave more like a regular politician in terms yeah. of calculating what he's going to say, as opposed to that earlier. And you still see plenty of the, you know, crazy, unfiltered Trump at work still. But he, he's modified. So then how do you compare Hillary Clinton with Donald Trump, because obviously they're the it's end of the spectrum, and Hillary Clinton is more like the politicians we have seen, career politicians over the years. Right, and I think Hillary Clinton's sort of great weakness is her uh, uh, fear of making a gaffe, fear of going off script. She's a very controlled, and in many ways that's a virtue. You know, thoughtful. You know, she thinks through what she wants to say, yeah. but it often comes off as insufficiently spontaneous, insufficiently warm human. And, you know, part of the project this week, and I think, uh, you know, somewhat successfully, has been to humanize her, to remind us, you know, the ways in which, yeah, so, you know, she, she chooses her words carefully, she plans things out carefully. Maybe that doesn't make someone the most appealing television personality, but it can be a strong skill in governing. We're joined by David Greenberg. Uh, he is a professor at Rutgers University. The book that he has put out, uh, Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So now, obviously, we're so 
deeply linked in with the internet age right now. And as we said, it's a little harder for for politicians to really get stuff by the public because of how the media is and there's so much more media. What's it going to be like? Can you start to look at the crystal ball a little bit and say, you know, it's not going to get any better for politicians and, and it may even in some respects change politics a little bit going forward? Well, I think, you know, the the easiest thing to say about the future, which is usually wrong, is that it's going to be like the present, only more so. Right, you know, right. So the, the tempting answer is to say, you know, since the Bill Clinton presidency, we've been increasingly in polarized times. Clinton in, impeachment, Bush v. Gore, yeah. the Iraq war, the Obama presidency. Uh, and, you know, Republicans have their worldview, Democrats have theirs, and never the twain shall meet. You know, in the past, there have been uh, periods like this where external events actually start changing the way we think about the other party, we think about communication. Yeah. Um, the Depression and World War II really changed things a lot. We were very suspicious of official communication coming out of World War I, propaganda. Yeah. But with FDR and his fireside chats, he broke through that and he helped people trust in the presidency again. Yeah. So... You know, it's very hard to say what's going to come along next. I think for the short run, we're in for this kind of trench warfare between two ideological camps yeah. and maybe even three or four ideological camps as you see, you know, a hard left wing and the Democrats getting more vocal yeah. and this Trump being populist right wing getting more vocal. So, you know, how any of these groups will find agreement is going to be an enormous challenge for the next president. But it is interesting you bring up the fact that that whoever the, the president is come November, uh, that that person is going to be dealing with a lot of, of stuff outside of the United States because of terrorism, because of you know, attacks that go on that are seemingly, and, and I hope I'm wrong, but are seemingly going to continue. And that's a, that's a piece where you, you don't want to spin. You want to bring the facts straight out. You want to be straightforward with the people of the United States. And it, it gets the politician away from that type of that type of approach. Right. Politicians, presidents in particular, are most attractive to a broad swath of the electorate, to people who don't agree with them ideologically. Yeah. When there are external threats, um, you know, look at George W. Bush after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming out of the Bush v. Gore contested Florida recount, you know, <laughs> hanging chat, hanging chat. Half of America really did not consider him an Ill a legitimate president, yeah. and yep. yet with 9/11, a lot of people kind of put their partisanship on hold yep. uh, and and saw him as a statesman at least for a, a brief time. Even Obama, who you know people describe as polarizing, you know, for a while had a kind of honeymoon period where people were willing to say, you know, he's he's a statesman. Let's let him lead us out of this great recession. Yeah. Um, and the best presidents, I think, can find their moments where, despite partisan differences, ideological differences, uh, they they can speak to the whole electorate fairly effectively. 
Great to meet you. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, sure. And so, obviously, people can find the book uh, in bookstores and online. Uh, website that people could uh, could find out more? Republicofspin.com. Very easy to remember. Nice meeting you, David. Thank nice you very much you for, for coming in. Yeah. David Greenberg, uh, a professor at Rutgers University, and as you mentioned the book, Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.